Would you please turn with me to your study outlines? And as you're turning, <coughs> as you're turning, I'd like to welcome those of you that are watching online and also our friends in Arco, Idaho, and also the hangar in Montana. We are so glad uh, that you are joining us uh, for our study of God's Word this morning. We're doing a series <coughs> from the book of Acts entitled Rooted in Purpose. And today, the title of our study from Acts chapter 10 is What is an Acceptable Risk? Now, to continue the Super Bowl theme a little bit, who wins the Super Bowl today? A big part of it is going to be who best handles risk. I mean, the quarterback, either Russell Wilson or Tom Brady, if they take too much risk, they're going to get intercepted. If they don't take enough risk, they're never going to make a completion or a touchdown pass. Or say in the middle of the game, there's a fourth and one in the middle of the field. Well, Bill Belichick or Pete Carroll, they're going to have to determine, do you go for it or not? Is, is the particular thing an acceptable risk or not? And so I think that how they handle risk is going to go a big way to determining who wins the Super Bowl. And the same thing is true uh, within our lives as well. What do we consider too much risk or too little risk? What is an acceptable risk? Uh, let me give you some quotes on risk. Tallulah Bankhead said, if I had my life to live again, I'd make the same mistakes only sooner, okay? I'd make the same mistakes, I'd just do them sooner in life. Nadine Stare, at the age of 85, said, if I had my life to live over, I'd like to make more mistakes next time. I'd relax, I'd limber up, and I'd be sillier than I've been this trip. I would take fewer things seriously. I would take more chances, climb more mountains, swim more rivers. I'd eat more ice cream and fewer beans. I would perhaps, I, li I love this one, I would perhaps have more actual trouble, but I would have fewer imaginary ones. You see, I'm one of those people who live sensibly and sanely hour after hour, day after day. Oh, I've had my moments, and if I had to do it over again, I'd have more of them. In fact, I try to have nothing else, just moments, one after another. Instead of living so many years ahead of each day, I've been one of those persons who never goes anywhere without a thermometer, hot water bottle, raincoat, and a parachute. If I had to do it again, I would travel lighter than I have. I'd start barefoot earlier in the spring and stay that way later in the fall. I'd go to more dances. I'd ride more merry-go-rounds. I'd pick more daisies. Now, forgive me, but I'm going to be contrarian for a couple of minutes here, okay? And if you think Glenn's a little more ornery than usual, just remember I'm kind of disappointed because the Green Bay Packers aren't in the Super Bowl, okay? So, so maybe that's why I'm grouchy here today. But let me be a bit contrarian. Because you always hear those kind of things like I just read, and everybody's like, oh, yeah, that's right. And there is a certain amount of truth in it. Please, please don't get me wrong. There, there is a certain degree of truth into what she said there. But if you think about it logically, it, it really doesn't matter. You see, what we find within our society right now is without God, if you just, you're dead and you're over with and you turn into dirt, there's no significance, meaning, or purpose in life. And there's this, you'll see it in movies, you'll see it in a lot of um, things like that. People grasping and trying to create meaning where if you think about things logically, there is none to be found. If we just die and that's it, I mean, the Bible says, if there is no resurrection, let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And so you find these attempts to create purpose where it is very, very difficult to do so. And, and, and so, really, uh, think about it for a moment. If you have more moments in your life and you die, do you really win? No, you don't. 
you're tied with the other person who died, all right? Uh, You've heard the thing, he who dies with the most toys wins. No, they don't. They tie with the person who has fewer toys when they die. All right? Uh, People say, well, I'm going to take more trips. That will make my life more meaningful. Or I'm going to have more moments that I can post on Facebook. And Facebook becomes this giant competition to who can have the most experiential life. All right? Well, okay, that's nice. and And I think that's a good thing. And that's wonderful. But really, when you die, you die. And you're tied with the person who didn't have as many cool experiences and didn't get as many things done on their bucket list, all right? And so really, when it's all said and done, it's hard to find purpose and meaning if there is no life after death, if there is no God. And so what I would try to encourage you to do as your pastor is try to have more adventures for eternity. Try to take more acceptable risks for eternity. If you serve somebody in the name of Jesus, that matters for eternity. If you have a boldness to share Jesus with another person and invite them to go to heaven with you, that has an impact for eternity. If you sacrifice of of your finances and you take risks with your finances to give it away to help people in need or to proclaim the name of Jesus, that has an impact for eternity. So let's not fall into this thing of our culture where people are desperately trying to create meaning where there is no meaning to be found. And let us live more acceptable risks for eternity, which will have meaning if we take those risks during our lifetime. Now, with that different definition of risk in play, let's look at some more quotes. T.J. Wilson, who's the CEO of IBM, said the way to succeed is to double your failure rate. Uh, Ray Ray Bradbury once said, you've got to jump off cliffs and build your wings on the way down. Uh, Here's one of my favorites. Mario Andretti said, if things seem under control, you're just not going fast enough, all right? Uh, A German poet, a man named Goda, said the dangers of life are infinite and among them is safety. Oh, someone once said, if you're willing to take a risk, you're going to discover something. Some days you're the bug, and some days you're the windshield. All right. Uh, Winston Churchill once said, there is a precipice on either side of you, a precipice of caution and a precipice of over-daring. Now, let's see what the Bible says. In Ecclesiastes 11, verse 1, ship your grain across the sea. After many days, you may receive a return. It's not a sure, sure thing. It's a return. It's a, it's a risk. You may run into a storm and lose it all, but if you don't never ship your grain across the sea, if you never take a risk, you'll never get a return. But at least if you ship your grain across the sea after many days, you may receive a return. Uh, Somebody told me they were at their AA meeting last week, and they heard somebody say, we are like ships, we're safe when we're moored in the harbor, but that's not what ships were made for. You know, as your pastor, uh, every pastor has a choice They can either be an undertaker, a caretaker, or a risk taker. Some pastors are undertakers, and they just oversee the decline and eventual death of their church. Some pastors are caretakers. They oversee the maintenance of a plateaued church. But some pastors are risk takers. That is, we lead our congregations in acceptable risks to build the kingdom of God and reach people for Christ. And in the process, we see growth and life as the years go by. 
Now, there's a balance in Scripture between Ecclesiastes 11, verse 1, and Proverbs 12, verse 11. Those who work their land will have abundant food, but those who chase fantasies have no sense. So the truth is somewhere in between Ecclesiastes 11, verse 1, and Proverbs 12, verse 11. There is a place to take an acceptable risk, then work your land, but there is unacceptable risk where we merely chase fantasies. I mean, whenever you drive into Las Vegas, ask yourself the question, where did they get the money from to build these nice buildings, okay? They didn't get it from giving away more than they take in. They got it from taking in uh, more than they give out. It's a little bit mean, and, and so I always feel a little bad when I say it. But, um, you know, I've always said about the lottery. The lottery is a tax on people that are bad at math. That's, that's what the lottery is. Uh, because the lottery, you know, I'll tell you how you can be assured of will, winning a million-dollar lottery winnings by the end of your life. You're, guaranteed, 100%. You take the amount that the average American spends on the lottery every year. You take that amount and you invest it in a mutual fund and I can almost guarantee you, you'll have a million dollars by the time you die. 100% as opposed to one in a million shot or one in 10 million shot uh, that you'll win a million dollar lottery. Uh, You gotta, um, you know, that that great theologian, Kenny Rogers once said, um, you gotta know when to hold up. You gotta know when to fold up. You got to know when to walk away. You got to know when to run, okay? You, you got to know when to take the swing. You got to know when to hold up and not swing. I love the story of uh, Ted Williams during the great career of baseball legend Ted Williams. A rookie pitcher complained to the umpire that a pitch he had thrown the Hall of Famer was a strike instead of a called ball. The umpire told the young pitcher to keep his mouth shut and just pitch. The next pitch that the pitcher threw was hit by Ted Williams 440 feet over the center field wall. The umpire was smiling when he approached the young pitcher. You see, son, Mr. Williams will let you know when you throw a strike. Uh, he'll, he'll give you a clue. Uh, that, that, was, that was a strike. So you got to know when to swing. You got to know when to hold up. And so here in Acts chapter 10, we're just going to look at four principles for what is Uh, an acceptable risk, okay? There's unacceptable risk, there's no risk, and then there's an acceptable risk. Number one, an acceptable risk is when you discover what God is doing, what God is up to, and you jump on board. Verse one, it's Caesarea. There's a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. Now, this guy had it made. He had a good posting by the ocean in a city named after the Caesar, Caesarea, His name was Cornelius, a very common name at that time. The reason it was so common is because in 82 BC, about 120 years before this time, uh, a fellow by the name of Cornelius Sulla, uh, he took all of his money, all of his wealth, and he freed 10,000 slaves, took everything he owned, and he gave it to free, to give 10,000 slaves their freedom. So every one of those slaves took the name of Cornelius. And now over the last hundred years, they have, you know, propagated and and they've uh, had children and that name has been carried on. So now it's an extremely common name within the Roman Empire. He was a centurion. That is, he was an army officer uh, in the Roman army, over hundreds of crack troops. As a matter of fact, he was part of what was called the Italian Regiment, which was known for its courage. They were kind of the special forces or the naval seals of their time. This man, Cornelius, he and all his family 
were devout and God-fearing. The Greek word here for family is oikos, eight to 15 people in his household. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him at fear. What is it, Lord, he asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. Now this is a risk for Cornelius. Let me share why it's a risk. Archaeologists have discovered at the top of a gate in Ephesus, and they've found this uh, inscription on this major city of the Roman Empire, uh, which is exemplary of what was happening all around the Roman Empire. This is the city Ephesus where Paul wrote his letter to the Ephesians. And this inscription archaeologically says, Caesar is the Son of God. Caesar is the Son of God. And any seeking after, any vision that says that anybody but Caesar is the son of God was a risk for Cornelius. But he thought it was an acceptable risk. You know, amazing stories we're hearing all across the Muslim world. Do you know a huge way that many Muslims are coming to Christ across the Muslim world now, even in persecuted countries, they're coming to Christ because they're having dreams where Jesus appears to them in a dream. Do you know that Iran is one of the fastest growing places of Christianity. You know why? Because of Jesus appearing in dreams to Muslims, asking them to seek after him. It's this, we're hearing crazy stories all over the Muslim world. But can you imagine the courage it takes a Muslim to respond to that dream the way Cornelius responded to his dream? Uh, here's another example of a dream. I just read this the other night. I was reading up on the Super Bowl. I like to read the kind of the background of the, the players and that kind of thing. Russell Wilson, quarterback uh, for the Seahawks. Um, he went to high school very near my high school I grew up with in Virginia. I went to the public high school, Prince George High School. He went to the private school, uh, Collegiate, which was up in Richmond, a very prestigious private school that Russell Wilson uh, went to. So I just knew he was a Virginian. Just when the more I found out about what a wonderful young man he is, I just had to figure he had to be a Virginian. Sorry, we Virginians are very snobby about uh, our Virginia heritage. So anyway, he's a very passionate follower of Jesus Christ. And he said in the article, this article where he was speaking, he talked about how he came to follow Christ. You know how Russell Wilson came to be a Christian? At the age of 14, he had a dream where Jesus appeared to him in the dream and said, you need to find out more about me. And the next Sunday he went to church and he was saved. That first Sunday he went to church after Jesus appeared to him in a dream at the age of 14. And so it was a risk for Russell Wilson to do that as a popular young teenager. It was a risk for Muslims to do that today. It was a risk for Cornelius to do it, but it was an acceptable risk. Two choices we have. Continue in the same rut or go with how God is moving. In Genesis 6, uh, Noah had to decide, do I risk wasting my life building an ark that will never be used? Or do I trust God to do what he told me to do? Genesis 19, Lot had to decide, do I risk the ridicule of the people uh, in my city in Sodom when I flee the city, or do I do what God told me to do? Uh, Gideon in Judges chapter 6, do I risk my life by doing, or do I do what God 
uh, tells me uh, to do. And so there's this risk, but there's an acceptable risk when we discover what God is doing and jump on board. Next page of your study outline. Then number two, you wait on God in prayer. You wait on God in prayer. And now, meanwhile, back at the ranch, the two main characters of the story are Cornelius, but now what's happening with Peter? And Peter goes up on the roof to pray, and he too has a vision, just like Cornelius had. And in his vision, God tells him it's okay for he as a Jew to share Jesus with a non-Jew, what we would call a Gentile. Uh, It says in verse 17, Peter's wondering, he's meditating on on what God has said to him. Uh, Verse 19 Peter's thinking about the vision, and the Spirit says to him, it's okay to go and share Jesus with these people. Verse 23, then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. And so a second character trait of an acceptable risk is one in which we watch and pray to make sure that God is in this thing, and it's not just some idea that we came up with. Then number three, an acceptable risk is one that sends us to people who need Christ. Uh, Verse 23, The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. Now the 8 to 15 in his oikos, his household, he's called in everybody he knows. Now the house is packed with 80 to 100 people. It reminds me of a story from history. John Patton put his picture up there. He was a missionary in the South Pacific during the early 1800s. And every day for eight years, he would share Jesus with the people of that island. And nobody came to Christ. They would smile in agreement. They would smile and and, and nodding with him. But not a single person would ever commit their life to Christ. He did this every day for like eight years. And finally says, Lord, I I guess there's just no interest here. I'm I'm going to need to move on to another island. And he was just about to quit. And one morning he goes out on his front lawn. And here's all 1,200 people from the South Pacific Island on his front yard. And he says, what's up with this? And the tribal chief comes up and says, we're ready to receive Jesus now. He says, what are you talking about? He says, all of us, we're ready to receive Jesus. He says, what do you mean? And the tribal chief said, well, you see, in our culture, nobody does anything until we're all ready to do that thing. And so now we're all ready. So here we are. And he spent the next three days baptizing every single person, all 1,200 on that particular island. And so it reminds me of that here with Cornelius. He calls together his relatives and close friends As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up, stand up, he said. I'm only a man myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. And he said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask what you sent me for? Now, it was a risk for Cornelius. It was also a risk for Peter. He risked his reputation. He risked his Jewish faith. He risked his comfort zone. But he was willing to do it because it meant reaching people uh, for Jesus. And the same thing is true for us. I'll put a picture up of the sinking of the Titanic They say, why did 1,517 people die in the sinking of the Titanic? You say, well, Glenn, because the Titanic hit an iceberg and it it sank. Well, not exactly. The reason 1,517 people died is because the 
lifeboats were all half full when it went down. And only one of the lifeboats, only one of the lifeboats was, was willing to take the risk to go back to save anybody drowning in the water for fear that they would be capsized and they would lose their lives. Only one went back and they saved six people, but none of the other lifeboats took the risk to go back. And the same thing's true for us. Are we willing to go outside of our comfort zone? Are we willing um, to... Um, you know, be outside of our comfort zone with our time, with our service, with our energy, with our finances? Are we willing to take an acceptable risk to reach people that are, that are going to a Christless eternity? Are we willing to take those risks? Do we live a life in our comfort zone or are we willing to go outside of that comfort zone living an acceptable risk like Cornelius seeking after God, like Peter being willing to reach out to people that was out of his comfort zone. And then number four, uh, another character trait of an acceptable risk is one that keeps us focused on the main thing. See, we are are so prone, you know, Satan's goal for us is not necessarily to get us to do bad things. I mean, I look across this uh, audience and and I don't think to myself, boy, Glenn, you better preach a good message because a bunch of them are going to go out and rob a bank this week if, they don't, if you don't, you know. Or, oh, I think there's a bunch of murderers out there. I think somebody's going to commit murder if you don't preach. No, no, no. When I look out, I see a bunch of wonderful people on a Super Bowl Sunday that have carved out time to worship God and study his word. But you know what the danger for us is? Is to get our focus off the main thing and just get our time get gobbled up in secondary things. Okay? Just secondary things. Things that aren't going to last. That, that's, that's, when I look in the mirror, that's what I see. The guy in the mirror, that's my temptation. Is good things that will keep me from the main thing. And the main thing is keep the main thing, the main thing. And the main thing is Jesus. The main thing is serving in the name of Jesus. The main thing is sharing in the name of Jesus. The, the main thing is seeing everything we do at work and at school and in our neighborhood as being as representatives, as ambassadors of Jesus. And so an acceptable risk is one that keeps us focused on the main thing. Verse 1 of chapter 11, the apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers, this is people that believed he had to be Jewish and follow Jesus in order to be saved. So they believed he had to do the Jewish law plus Jesus. The circumcised believers criticized him. And when you start focusing on the main thing um, rather than secondary things, people will criticize our church. People will criticize us when we get, when we focus on the main thing because they will be convicted by their focus on secondary things. The circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and you ate with them. And so he was criticized. And now Peter, who was the apostle to the Jews, Paul was considered the apostle to the Gentiles, and Peter, the main leader of the Jewish believers. And now all of a sudden, they didn't think he was so great. He was their guy before, but he is not so much their guy now. It reminds me of a poem I heard Chuck Swindoll um, great preacher, one of my heroes, uh, use a number of years back. He says, I have a pastor. Time was when he was a good pastor. I pronounced him great. This I did because I liked him. His sermons were wonderful as long as I liked him. His speech was passing fair as long as I liked him. He was a hard worker as long as I liked him. 
He was the man for the job as long as I liked him. In fact, I was strong for him as long as I liked him. But my pastor offended me one day. Whether he knew it or not, I do not know. Since that day, my pastor has ceased to be a good pastor. He's just an ordinary one. His sermons are not so wonderful since he offended me. His speech is of no account since he offended me. His faults are more prominent since he offended me. He's not a hard worker since he offended me. He's not the man for the job since he offended me. He doesn't feed me anymore since he offended me. And so Peter had offended these uh, Jewish Christians, friends of his. And so now they criticize him. But here's the good news about these people. They were willing to listen. And so in verse 4, starting from the beginning, Peter told them the whole story. Verse 18, when they heard this, they were willing to listen. They were open-minded. They had no further objections and praised God, saying, so then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. God has granted repentance that leads to life. If you look at the upper left-hand corner of the next page of your study outline, uh, you'll see there uh, a list of what it means to follow him in repentance to eternal life. And, and, and you look there, and it says that, first of all, you acknowledge that we've done wrong. The, the word repentance is a word that's not very popular today, but it simply means to acknowledge, Lord, uh, I'm not perfect. I've hurt other people. I fail to love other people. It's what the Bible calls sin. And Lord, I want to turn from that life of selfishness and just thinking about myself and, and just this temporary life of just living, you know, from one fun thing that's all about me, from this life of narcissism. And I want to repent and I want to turn 180 degrees to a life of service and love to other people in the name of Jesus. That's what it means to repent, to turn. And then B, to believe that Jesus is, is, is the one to follow. And by his death on the cross, I can be forgiven and I can live a new life. And then C says, I now choose to follow after him. And Jesus says that everybody that has made that decision has crossed over from death to life. And that's what, and that's what Peter says here. That's what it says in the Bible. God has granted repentance that leads to life. And Jesus says, when you receive me as your Lord and Savior, you repent and you turn, and that makes you cross over from spiritual death to spiritual life. And then there's a little suggested prayer there. We'll put that up. And right now, I want to invite you to pray silently as I pray this prayer out loud. Dear God, thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to earth. I believe Jesus was who he said he was and proved it by rising from death. Right here, right now, I want to discover and begin following your plan and purpose for my life. I want to get to know you personally. Thank you, Jesus Christ, for dying for me and forgiving all my sins. Right here, right now, I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you for your free gift of eternal life. And I pray this in Jesus' name and all God's family said. Amen. Hey, if you prayed that prayer, we have a gift we'd love to give to you. They're on tables in the guest center at the south end of the lobby and the north end of the lobby. 
and no obligation, no pressure when we're finished uh, with our service sharing the Lord's Supper together. Uh, just stop by and pick that up. It's some resources that will help you in your new walk with God if you prayed that prayer. If you'd like to talk to somebody, there will be somebody there that would love to talk with you, answer any questions that, yeah, that you might have. Uh, but we would just love to give you this as a, as a gift from us to you uh, to help you in your new walk with Jesus. And then another thing. If you've prayed that prayer or something like it in the past, or if you pray that prayer just now, you are very welcome to share the Lord's Supper. You made an inward decision, but now you show outwardly. The way you show outwardly that you want to follow Jesus is by being baptized and also by receiving the cup, which represents his blood shed for you on the cross, and the bread, which represents his body given for you. And so by taking communion, you are saying outwardly that you're a follower of Jesus Christ, uh, the same with water baptism. And so if you prayed that prayer or you've done it in the past or you did it today, you're very welcome uh, to share the Lord's Supper with us uh, right now. So let's take just a moment and prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's Supper.